This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. How do you make application changes when you have 120 million active monthly users? Ledge sat down for an amazingly useful chat with James Colgan, Microsoft's Director of Product Management for Outlook Mobile Enterprise, to describe some of the tools and processes used to do this. For the last few years, he's been working with the largest, most complicated, and most sophisticated organizations with one goal, super happy users at super massive scale. You won't want to miss how James walks Ledge through some of the process the Outlook mobile team followed to growth from 0 to 56 million active users in just two years, and then how to engage enterprise customers as the product matures and you're looking for greater scale. James, it's great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. My absolute pleasure, Ledge. It's great being here. Could you give a little uh, background story of of yourself and your work so the audience can uh, get to know what you're doing? Yeah, um, I've been in product management for a very long time now, but had uh, a winding story. I started out as an embedded software developer um, working on embedded systems. I've done product management and led programs for embedded microprocessors, cloud computing, SaaS applications, and most recently with Outlook Mobile. So essentially, I've gone from the back end of the supply chain all the way up to the front end of the supply chain, which has been an awesome journey for me. Um, constantly, I mean, the common theme is is finding problems, solving problems, and iteratively learning. That's really what I what uh, what drives me is where am I going to learn most? And most recently, it's how can I have a greatest impact and share a lot of the learnings that I've I've gathered over these years, and that's why I love these types of podcasts where I can share some of the learnings uh, that I've gathered. Um, most recently, let's see, four years ago, I was recruited into Microsoft to be the first product manager to lead Outlook Mobile um, as it came in from an acquisition. And um, it was an awesome uh, task that was put in front of us. We had virtually very few uh, monthly active users, and we had a very audacious goal. And within two years, we got it to just under 60 million monthly active users, learned a lot along the way, made a ton of mistakes, as you do, as you're scaling something out so rapidly. And then most recently, for the last couple of years, what I've been doing is really focusing on um, scale. How do we engage with the largest and most complicated and sophisticated enterprises on the planet? And make sure that not only are they happy in the uh, products that we put out, but their users, their employees are not only productive, getting things done and organized, but also that they're super happy using the product and, and really trying to get my head around how do we do that at such a massive scale. So that's kind of where I came from and, and what I'm doing right now. And so, yeah, wow, lessons learned. I mean, you already said 120 million active users now. I mean, Outlook is the cornerstone certainly of, of corporate uh, email, you know, on the desktop and now, you know, pushing to mobile. And I mean, just that's an extreme number of users, you know? <laughs> so how do you even begin to keep track of and, and think about and iterate something that, that has such a massive footprint when you, you know, make a change? Uh, you know, you see all kinds of things online where, 
you know, someone changed their logo and everybody goes berserk, you, you have a lot higher stakes now uh, in, in the seat you're in. So please, you know, just talk through some of those stories. Yeah, sure. So um, as we often say within the, um, within the team, we're very much user-driven and data-informed. <clears throat> a lot of companies talk about being data-driven. Data helps you understand the what of what is going on, but it don't help, doesn't really help you understand the why. And it's really getting to understand and having a visceral sense of your users and their context um, is really where the conversation starts. So <clears throat> as, as a product lead, um, when we were started to more seriously focus on, on, on the enterprise, when we first came into the company, to be honest with you, we were very much being used by consumers. And the vast majority of our users are actually consumers in the consumer space. And we got a tremendous amount of growth from there. But then once we had reached a level of compliancy, which is very important in this uh, day of GDPR, and we had uh, met a, a minimum bar of the features that enterprises were needing, that's when we were able to really say that we are enterprise ready and to engage with these customers more deeply. And to start off that whole process, what I did was uh, look across the various different segments that we serve, and Microsoft serves pretty much every segment on the planet, and see if we can find some canonical examples of, of customers and enterprises that represents their, their, um, their industry. But more importantly, not so much the industry as in they are in retail, and therefore um, this is what's important to them. They're in uh, manufacturing. This is what's important to them. It's really have that as an entry into how do they run their company? How do they organize themselves? How do they communicate? And how do they collaborate? And so when we had these meetings, these were day-long meetings where I would ask to talk to an executive in, within the company, a midline manager within the company, and then an individual contributor within the company. And then we'd have a conversation, pretty much like the conversation we're having right now. It is, tell me about your day. Tell me about your life. Um, what do you do when you get up in the morning? What, how do you get to work? And then we start to get into things like, okay, how big is your organization? How many teams do you lead? How many people are on those teams? Um, how geographically distributed are they? Are you having meetings online and conference calls? Are you having them um, live and face-to-face? -face? Um, what are the, how many emails? Then, then we started getting into the emails aspect of the conversation um, and how to get into how to manage your calendar. But everything was truly grounded in how do you organize yourself? How do you think about your day? How do you work and collaborate with various different people in your organization, both inside your company and outside the company? And it was absolutely fascinating to see that as you move through the organization, the challenges that each of these individuals had varied dramatically. And all of those um, challenges and opportunities that they presented to us were all equally important. And then for, it came down to, okay, how do we prioritize and how do we move forward with, with particular features and how do we roll those features out? And so as a product leader, <clears throat> really what you're doing is getting that visceral, visceral sense of the user within their context, being able to synthesize that across multiple customers and multiple different user types or personas, and then being able to bring that back into really the triad, as, as many people call it, which is your uh, team of product management, uh, de developer, and, uh, and designer. 
And what I've done most recently as I've been um, having these conversations is adding a fourth person into that team, and that is your data scientist. But what you do is you, you, you bring into that team the challenge or the opportunity that you've discovered as you've been synthesizing this, this data, this information, these interactions across all of these different customers. And you articulate that as accurately and as honestly as you, as you can. It's, it's very key to be objective in, in this. It's very difficult often for people to separate themselves because we all have our own lives. We all have our own opinions and challenges and opportunities we have in front of us. But how do you honestly and subjectively represent those to the team that this is what we're trying to tackle for this set of particular users? And then it is um, being able to articulate that and, and brainstorm and work through the classical design sprint, right? You've got five days where you work through exactly the challenge that you're, you're, looking, to, um, you're looking to take advantage of. You uh, brainstorm particular ideas, you mock them up, you test them, you iterate, you learn. And then as, as a product leader, you're really looking to help the team and give them the space to innovate. Um, we've, we've put out in front of the team exactly what we're looking to solve, and we've all agreed that this is a problem that, that is important to us and our users. So how do you, how do you innovate? And um, that's where uh, engineers, developers, and designers can really come up with some magical ideas. And then again, as a product leader, what you've done is you've engaged with these enterprises. And what I love to do is then take back some of the ideas that we've come up with and put them up in front of in front of customers and have in front of users and have deep conversations about what a particular workflow looks like. You know, you're, um, this is something that uh, designers and, and PMs do uh, across the globe. But it's great to see when you put uh, when your users have come with a particular problem and you put a solution in their hands, how they interact with it. Because what you thought was obvious absolutely is not. And what you uh, had no idea of a real value, then your users can point out a delighter that you really didn't, maybe didn't pay much attention to, but it happens to be something that is, is their favorite aspect of the feature. And so it's getting that feedback and, you know, you're, you're framing it in, in a way to set expectations, right? It's, it, this isn't your users and your customers designing your product for you. It's them providing feedback that, again, you've got to synthesize across a whole bunch of customers. And then you, you're taking that back in and say, okay, what have we learned? And it's this constant learning and iterative process where you're refining down as you go through the various different levels of fidelity of the, of the, uh, the mock-up or, um, um, or the dev version of the product. And then you're starting to roll that out to uh, select portions of the, of the, uh, of the user base gauging feedback again, and then slowly cranking that up and rolling it out to, you know, 120 million people uh, worldwide. One thing that strikes me early in that process and having been through, you know, some of this, certainly not at the scale, but how, how do you take all that qualitative information and, and what is that? Like, literally, what is that synthesis process? How do you actually take all the notes or transcriptions or, Whatever it is that, that gets that initial set of feedback and, uh, you know, really what, what are the tactical steps and tools to turn that into something that ends up in a, a design sprint and developer backlog? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It, it's, the, it's the classical combination of art and art meets science. So, <clears throat> um, 
Let me give you an example of how we did that in the early days, where our main point of, of, uh, of feedback from users was through the App Store reviews. So a lot of a lot of companies and teams maybe don't have the resources or the bandwidth to go out there and, and interview a whole bunch of customers um, and, and, and users in the same way that we do. Um, I absolutely appreciate that we've got a tremendous amount of reach um, that, is, that is unique in the industry, and not all teams have that. And a very good proxy for that is, um, is design, uh, reviews on the app stores. And what we did there to systematize that was um, because, you know, you, you've, got, you've got the full spectrum and you'll get particular app reviews um, on iOS and Android. And there were very different, almost personality types between the operating systems, which, was, which we found absolutely fascinating. But the first thing you need to be able to do is aggregate all of those reviews that you're getting and then uh, bucketize them um, across your one stars, two stars, three stars, four stars, and five stars. Your five stars are, are really are really interesting in that they're giving you, you know, the pat on the back, and it's nice, it's nice to see that you're making somebody's life better. But where you're really going to get the, the value is in looking at your one-star reviews. And then what we did within those one-star reviews is categorize each of them in terms of the type of feedback that we're getting. And it could be relative to performance. It could be relative to reliability. It could be the onboarding process and logins. It could be a particular feature within a certain component of your app. So in Outlook Mobile, maybe it's email or maybe it's in calendar. It could be a competitive feature that they're looking for. Um, and when you're starting out and you're, you're an insurgent, which Outlook Mobile definitely was the uh, insurgent on these platforms, um, that's a great source of how do you prioritize the features that competitive solutions have and your, and your user base are asking for. And so once you've then categorized each of those one-star reviews and prioritized them, that then you've got a good, you've taken a massive amount of data and you've got a framework around which to reason over it. And then what we did as a team was, and this is, this is very important, you need to do this as a team because everybody needs to take responsibility for uh, the resolution of challenges and really bringing value to the user and the customer. Um, so with um, engineering and design and PM in the room, uh, we looked at each of these one stars and the top five of these one stars and we said, okay, this is what this one star review means. Uh, this is the why, really, behind that particular sentiment. And you'd be able to back that up with uh, choice statements that you've cherry-picked or rather selected. Cherry-pick means you've got the subjective perspective to it, but you're trying to be as objective as possible. You select out some choice statements that really um, they are emblematic of the sentiment of the population. And uh, once everyone has an understanding of the why, then you have the people in the room that can start to take ownership of the problem or the opportunity. And so you've, you've prioritized, you've, you've, you've sorted, you've categorized, you've, uh, you've created a framework that everyone agrees with. You have then uh, prioritized and come to an agreement on, on, on how uh, a, a problem could be solved. Then it goes, those issues go into the design sprint and you move forward with the classical process of working through a design sprint, coming out with a solution, breaking that down, and it goes onto your backlog. Now, you can do that um, for an entire product when the team is small and, and the product is just starting out. And we started out very small with about 20, 25 people on the entire team. Now we're much, much larger than that. Um, and you need different tools and different ways to get 
that uh, that feedback at scale. But again, as as you're starting out small, or you've got a a small portion of of a, a larger product or a larger solution, that's something you can do as as a whole team or a good selection of the team. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that one thing that struck me when you're saying that 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 in fact the one stars are so valuable. My my gut instinct would have been that you know I, we've all read the reviews. It's like, well, I would have given this a five if it just had X, Y, or Z, and or you know three stars because it was missing these two things. And where I you know a lot of times you might think that you know a one star is your sort of troll, right? Um, but, but you found out, I guess that that's, that's not the case. And I, then I, again, I kind of wonder, are those almost five-star reviews more like, you know, the siren song that you actually should ignore? Did you have any thoughts and experiences in there to not work on the polls, but, uh, Hey, you know, if we just did this, we'd get a five, like we want more fives. That seems like it would, it would call to you. And maybe that's incorrect. No, it's um, it, it's a very reasonable assumption to make, and uh, and we made we made lots of changes and course corrections um, as we as we learned more from the data. Um, with I would have given a five star if you had this one feature. That's that is interesting. You're you're absolutely right. Um, but if you're thinking about, let's see, what's the best way to put this? Um, Every great product is built on a solid foundation and fundamentals. And so there's that one feature that could take somebody from a four to a five, but the equivalent one-star person is really unhappy. The the one that's given you a four-star, they're working through their day. You're providing value to that user. Um, you're, you're helping them already, and you could take them to from a happy to a joyous state. But again, if you're if you are really want to focus on on your fundamentals and the foundations of your product, then that's really where you're going to get for the one stars from. Absolutely, you're going to get you're going to get the trolls in there, and you need to be able to filter those out. But you do have people in there that are just desperately unhappy, and and it's it's very tempting to look at a one star review and say, well, that's just somebody just trolling you. Let's ignore them. But um, that's also the place where you're going to get issues around reliability and performance um, and, and user experience and simplicity and elegance of the design. If they're complaining about a feature that isn't there, well, sorry, if they're complaining about a feature that is there, but they think that it isn't, that's a huge signal. It's a huge signal to say that our user experience really needs to be revisited. We've had this feature for a long time, but you know what? It's, it's three steps down. It turns out that it's actually... And needs to be higher up on the uh, on the um, on the informational hierarchy. Let's get let's bubble that up to the top, or let's just revisit it at least. So I, I completely understand that thinking about taking four stars to a five stars, it is like you say a siren song. Um, but what we found is by focusing on the one stars, we're able to improve the performance and uh, and the value that we're delivering to those people that are, that are unhappiest. And because you're focused there those four stars will naturally turn into five stars. Um, and and we, we proved that um, over and over again. When we first started out and released to the App Store, 
we had on average 2.2 stars and we were very unhappy. Um, and by the time we got through, I would say it took us a while, um, especially on Android, because you've got this, this hangover of one stars that you have to kind of work through. Um, right now, I think we're at 4.6 stars or 4.7 stars. And it's something that we still look at today, even though we've got other metrics and channels and signals that we get for user sentiment. We still look at the uh, star reviews as kind of our, our, our guiding light to, uh, to ensure that we're uh, heading in the right direction. I don't think that I would have guessed that. That's that's really interesting. You know, you'd think of, go, you know, Microsoft, they're beyond looking at the star ratings. And, and that's that's amazing. So it's really, it's good to hear that. I think that, that will be comforting for a lot of people that only have access to that. Uh, so, so shift to the, you know, sort of mega scale, data-driven, you talked about the data science becomes an important thing because then you're, I just, you're collecting so much data that, you know, what do you, how do you conceptualize that and turn that into more learnings? And then I'm guessing kind of merge the two. What's that process look like? Yeah. So, um, so we talked about app reviews. That's, that's the, the, that's the first thing. Um, The next, um, the next level of abstraction that I talk about is really the uh, Net Promoter Score, the NPS score, um, <clears throat> and that we needed we needed additional signals, and uh, we needed to um, really look at our existing user base objectively. And because you're absolutely right, the App Store reviews can be somewhat subjective at times, and so we needed to really look at, uh, at Net Promoter Score and, and get a, a, a touch on our user base more holistically across across the user base. So uh, once we've looked at once we've looked at the um, the App Store reviews, the next thing that we looked at was NPS scores. And uh, back in the day, we used um, a tool called Delighted, and that was where we were able to. Um, really engage our users and find very quickly and very simply. Okay, what do you think of our uh, what do you think of our app and the experience that you're having right now? By asking one particular question. For those people that aren't familiar with it, essentially you ask one question: Would you recommend this product to your friends and colleagues? And um, you give them a score from zero to ten. And that response is extremely indicative of their sentiment of the product. If it's a zero, then they really hate your product. If it's a 10, then they are a promoter, hence net promoter score. Um, and uh, somewhere in between, then that's not very useful feedback for us. But what this, and then what, what the equation essentially does is take all of that feedback. It gives you an average score. But the next thing that comes after that, for once a, a user has submitted their, uh, their response from zero to 10, then they ask, why did you give us that score? Um, and there we were able to get extract, you know, some really deep insights into, into our users um, and really get an understanding across multiple different geographies as well. Because that's the other challenge that we had when you're operating at a global scale. How do you get a sentiment or understanding of your users from cultures that are not your own, um, that are on the other side of the world? Um, so what we did there was again back to more of the subjective. We um, we did a, a, a research project that went over several months, and we went out to different geographies. We went out to Asia, South America, and focused a great deal on those two regions because we realized within our own team we didn't have a good representative 
uh, of, of those, those cultures. And we needed to learn. Quite frankly, we just needed to learn. And what we would do is sit down with those users and we'd be in their homes and our researchers would ask them the questions about how do they run their lives, very similar to what we did within the enterprise space, but this is on the consumer space. How did they run their lives? How did they communicate with their friends? How did they set up uh, a date night or how did they organize their family? Um, we'd see the post-its on the fridges. We'd see the uh, paper calendars hung up on the wall. Uh, we got a good sense of the messaging apps that people use and why they use them. Um, and from there, again, we've got that visceral sense and subjective information that we can bring back into the mix and, um, and uh, really use that to inform data that we're getting uh, from other channels. Uh, the next channel that we layered in as well on the data side of things was uh, user voice. So very, very early on, we integrated user voice into the app. And today, when you go into Outlook Mobile, you can in there not only ask for in-app support, which we can talk about because that was an innovation for, uh, within Microsoft that's spread across multiple different apps now, but you can suggest a feature. And so you can go in there and you can suggest a feature that you think is missing from the app or if somebody has already suggested that feature, you can upvote that. So that's another signal that we had. Um, the other key piece going back into the data science aspect of it when we first released the app, we, we had very little telemetry, in fact, virtually none. Um, and what we did was um, instrument almost the entire app because we needed to understand what the user journey was as much as possible from the app store all the way through to becoming what we call an engaged user. And what that meant was that as somebody is going through the onboarding process, we're looking at that as a funnel. And as uh, users are uh, adding an account, that's another stage of the funnel. And then once they land in their inbox, that first screen, um, um, what are they then doing? Because there's one thing is downloading the app. There's another thing, adding your own account and then opening up the app. But are they truly engaged? Meaning, are they using your app and getting value out of it? And that's where you need to think about, okay, what would we consider, regardless of the application, what would we consider an engaged user and a user that is getting value out of our out of our app or out of our SaaS application, right? And so it would be, oh, they um, they purchase an item. That's that's that really is engaged, but that's kind of at the end of another funnel. Okay, so prior to that, what would it be? They are searching for something. They are reading information, they are sharing articles, they are liking things. You've got various different metrics and you need to look at those and say, okay, users that are performing X, Y, and Z, we consider those as truly engaged. And that becomes the end of your funnel, okay? And so what we did is we instrumented all of that. And the first thing that we found was counterintuitively, um, our onboarding process where we're trying to educate people as they're coming onto and use it and about to use the product. We're educating users on, on the features that ended up being a net negative on, um, on, on our funnel. So we're very proud of our product, and we're saying, okay, these are all of the features that we have, the differentiators and get ready, prepare yourself because this experience is going to be awesome. And so we spent a lot of time and energy developing these, uh, cute little animations and gifts and things like that 
turns out that everyone, as they're downloading the app, the first thing they skip is all through all of that <laughs> educational information. They just want to get into the inbox and start using the app. Uh, and that, that blew our minds like, okay, so that's where we need to stop investing. And where we need to invest is how do we make that onboarding process as seamless as possible? And that's where we started looking at, okay, so people have email from Gmail, from Yahoo, from AOL, from uh, their own um, uh, server that they've, they've, they've stood up. You know, there's some, there are lots of people out there that are still using POP3, which unfortunately we still don't support. But um, we started looking at the challenges that users have in setting up those email accounts. And we started to find various different ways using, um, um, you could call it machine learning, very rudimentary machine learning. And we started pre-populating a lot of those fields that often people struggled at doing it themselves. And we just kept on finding ways to get smarter and smarter and smarter about that onboarding process to narrow it down as quickly as possible. So that was where we really were bringing together the subjective data which was, uh, I can't log in, this app sucks, I can't add my account, things of that nature that you were getting in through the one stars. And then through the telemetry, we are uh, looking, okay, where exactly in this process are we getting the drop off on the funnel? Where are people really struggling? Um, are they confused about what an email address is in the SMTP ID? And the, there's a lot of really under the hood um, minutia around email because it's a protocol that's been around for such a long time that just confuses people. So again, you've got to take that subjective as, a, as a, an indicator of where people are having challenges, marry it up with the data that you're seeing on the absolute funnel, um, and then focus the ingenuity and the creativity of the engineering team, of the designers, and of the data scientists that are still trying to eke out some of these insights from the data to really get at how you can add value and, and get people to become engaged with your product, not just because you want them engaged, but that is really a true measure of you delivering value and sustainable value to your users. Fascinating process. Yeah, there was another one that I just wanted to share as well, which is maybe a little bit counterintuitive. Um, Again, this was before we had uh, had a lot of our telemetry in place. We're still trying to build that out and get an, a basic understanding. But we had this goal. Des describe telemetry there, if, if you would. Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, when you say telemetry. Um, oh, yeah, sure. What, what does that mean in, in the context? Yeah, so basically what that means is you, um, you put within the code uh, a little um, callback signal that um, this particular user has... Uh, tapped on the calendar icon, for example, um, or they have tapped on the email or they have, it's just these little, um, so it's like activity based analytics with things, things that they did. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, and so from there you get a mapping and understanding. So another, another key piece of telemetry is session length. Okay. So, uh, a session length is defined as I open up the app. I do a whole bunch of actions and then I shut the app down or I background the app. And that is, that is called a session length. And what you need to understand is what exactly is going on within those sessions. And you're doing this at an aggregate level. 
as at an individual level, you're not really tracking an individual person about what they actually do, but what you want to see is how many of your users are doing X or how many of you users are doing Y after they've done X or are they starting to do X and then they go on to Z? You see what I mean? It's all done in the aggregate. Yeah, and I imagine there's all kinds of stuff like distance between push notification and action. And I mean, there's all kinds of things there that, you know, what, what am I prompting? Am I prompting for better engagement? Is it useful to the the user? I mean, maybe that comes down the line, but I mean, there's so many ways that apps now interact with us. They don't just sit there waiting for you. Right, exactly. And some of those insights that you'll get from uh, uh, from the telemetry will be, will be counterintuitive. Um, so we were aiming to increase our monthly active users. That's one of our key metrics. And so we're thinking, okay, if you want to increase our monthly active users, we need to increase retention. To increase retention, we need to increase engagement. To increase engagement means we want a longer session length. And so, you know, people will write emails. And so we want to make it easier and more enjoyable and engaging to compose emails. And so that was the path that we were going down, purely based off of intuition, because, again, we didn't have the, uh, the data yet. But then um, as we're going through this process, our telemetry started to come online and we started getting more of our data. And we looked at it and, to our surprise, our average session length within Outlook Mobile was 22 seconds long. And so when we thought that people were going to the mobile device and, and, and showing similar behaviors as you would have on the desktop, um, and they're writing these long emails, uh, contrary to that, our users, as they're waiting in line at Starbucks or whatever, they're whipping out their phone, they're opening up uh, Outlook Mobile, they're scanning through their inbox to see if they've got an email from their boss, they realize that they haven't and they're closing the app down or they are going through and they're uh, reading emails and then they'll get through a couple of emails and maybe we'll send a one word response. Okay, got it. And then they're shutting the app down. Meaning that really what our emphasis needed to be on was rather than creation of emails or creation of calendar invites, etc. it's more along consumption. So we needed to make the consumption of information uh, um, whether it's on email or whether it's on calendar and then on search as well as, a, as a, an optimizer of that, that needed to be the emphasis moving forward. And so it completely turned on, on our head the strategy about how we're approaching the entire app. Just from that one data point and being curious about that data point and asking the question, okay, why is it 22 seconds long? What is behind that? What are people doing and what's the context of, of where they are? Um, and then once we've dug behind that, then we can say, okay, this is how we need to be approaching um, everything, pretty much everything that we're doing within the product. The entire strategy and roadmap changed. And so if I could summarize, then you had that 22 seconds that would have led you then to say what specific things on on aggregate are people doing right. in the 22 seconds, right? So, so you were able to track, well, they scroll up and down. They read some emails and delete some and you know there's obviously some kind of fingerprint of a, a scanning sort of idea and quick responses so you were able to see those types of things so it it really comes down to you know tracking everything because you don't know what the next stage is then uh, you know how how someone uses 22 seconds is a it's an interesting way to to think about the world 
Yeah, it's because um, I mean it, it's kind of um, it's a process of successive revelation. So what what happens is you, you have a hypothesis, you use an initial insight from telemetry and from data to either prove or disprove that hypothesis. But really what you end up doing is creating more questions. So, wow, it's 22 seconds long. So people are really, what are they doing? So, okay, so they're, let's find out what they're doing. And What they're doing, not, not just assuming, oh, Jesus, 22 seconds, that's horrible. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because yeah. you could have, you you're absolutely right. You could have approached it in a very different direction. Like 22 seconds, that sucks. Let's make it 23 and 24. And that becomes right. your guiding principle and your, your key performance indicator. And that can lead you into a very... That would, that would be right. a disaster because then what you're doing is you're developing based upon your needs and your desires as opposed right. to your user's needs and your user's desires. So you've yeah. got to have this curiosity. It's like, okay, so A, what are they doing? And then you understand through a little bit of added telemetry because adding telemetry is often very expensive, right? It takes time. Right. Uh, think of it as a feature. Um, it's got to be reliable, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, then, you, then you find out a little bit, okay, this is what they're doing. And then you've got to ask yourself, so then why? There are all these other things that they could be doing. Why are they doing that? And that's, again, where you start to bring in the subjective aspects of it. That's when you need to be talking to actual users and observing actual users as they're using the application and, and having that conversation. Um, so that's all, like I said, at the top of the, uh, of the conversation is really this marrying of art and science and being able to bring them both together. It's the, the science of data science, and then it's the art of, of user research. They're, they both need to be hand in hand. Well, I bet we could both sit and do this all day. So I'll ask you a last question so that, um, you know, what, one thing I would want to know is um, what do you wish for and what do you, what do you wish it could do and through all this process that uh, maybe technology can't do, you know, put on your futurist hat and kind of go, man, I really wish, you know, I hope that it goes this direction in five years for, for people who are solving problems like this. That's a really good question. Um, for me, I'm, I'm looking for the products and services that we're building to be more proactive and predictive. What I mean by that is the onus is still on the user to initiate the transaction, meaning I think that I want to go on vacation and so I'm going to go to kayak or I think that I need to buy something therefore I'm going to go to Amazon and neither of those services and, and no real services are really anticipating a need and so how do you get a true understanding of the user and their context because you're not looking to solve everything for everyone um, how do you get a sense of, of what they need and be able to reach out proactively in a non-creepy manner, right? You, you need to be, there's a lot of empathy that needs to be involved here in, a, in an elegant way and say, and, and then offer up suggestions or paths that solve either long-term or short-term needs. Um, so yet yeah, to boil it down, it really, how do we start being more 
proactive and predictive in delivering value and satisfying the needs that the user may not have even known that they had. Well, I look forward to when Outlook can start telling me, hey, dude, you look like hell and you need a vacation. So, <laughs> you know, I- <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's that's the direction that Outlook Mobile can go in, right? I mean, we know um, a lot about the individual, what's on their calendar, how they're organizing their day. Um, so that we do have some data, data points that we can work off and we're constantly building intelligence into the app. Um, you're seeing that in, in some very incremental ways, um, but you'll see more moving forward. And again, it's really what are the problems and the challenges that we're looking to solve and can we be a little bit more proactive in that, of, of freeing up people's times, helping them to be a little bit more organized and maybe a little bit more focused. We're all extremely distracted, right? How do we bring focus and calm to the individual so that they can not only be more productive at work, but they can be happier in their lives. We are more and more, more and more demands are placed upon us as human beings. And the boundary between work and play is finer and finer. And we do have, there are many cultures in this world that you're switching between work and personal modes every few minutes. How do you, lower the stress level how do you bring calm how do you bring focus how do you bring how do you enable a user to focus on everything that's outside of the app that's when you're truly delivering value when your when your app can make the user happy when they are not using it then you've succeeded we i the user is focused on the conversation they're focused on their children they are focused in that meeting they are focused as they're being creative and they're being creative, they're adding value, they're having a more fulfilling life because they're not using your app, but it's enabled by your app. That's true success. That's a big vision. I can't do better than that. We'll finish with that one. <laughs> James, thank you so much. This has been super enlightening. I know the audience is going to love it. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Ledge. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.